Hey there, and welcome to my show, The Muses Merkaba. I'm your host, Elle Megan, and if you landed here, it's no coincidence. It means your intuition brought you here, and you're ready for inspiration and wanting to manifest the life of your wildest dreams. So, let's jump right in. Who are you? Where did you come from? Is the sort of reaction we all greeted 2020 with, not long after her introduction. For me, it was a massive improvement on my previous year when my fiancé died by suicide. I think if you had to take a long, hard look back on what at the time seemed like the year from hell, you might see it in a different light. It forced the collective to sit still, to re-evaluate one's purpose and what was important to them. It allowed everyone to focus on family, or, if like me, you are alone, to really dig deep and go within. Regardless of all the restrictions, control, and the C word, there was an abundance of creativity and self-development. I had friends become landscapers overnight, suddenly growing their own produce and enjoying it. Some dabbled in art, and some started making their own music, and many made babies. Families actually engaged. They were forced to sit down at the table and enjoy meals together. Parents got to know their children. We all learned very quickly that a nine-to-five office job with a commute is not required. There was a new respect for nurses, garbage collectors, and the supermarket bagpackers. People we never saw before were now so relevant and so appreciated. Suddenly, our value on life and survival became paramount. In some, there was a noticeable shift from ego to humility, realizing that we are all one. We all come to this earth with nothing and leave this earth with nothing. And then, in others, the lack mindset and scarcity, living in fear, skyrocketed, hoarding, buying every last toilet roll, fighting in supermarkets over a fucking cucumber, and in some cases, buying all the food at the supermarket on a little Caribbean island so that their super yacht would be stocked for the next five years, never mind the local islanders expected to survive. People became either more compassionate or became bigger assholes. In August 2019, I was in Cornwall, England. I literally had been in bed for three months, trying to decide whether I should kill myself too or what the fuck to do. I had left the yachting industry in 2016 and moved to Bali, and here I was three years later in the UK. This was not part of my plan. A good friend of mine, John Henry, got in touch and suggested I jump back onto a yacht. I laughed at the time, telling myself I was too old, entirely out of the loop. He reminded me I rocked the industry and would get back in no problem. To kill time and not myself, I brought up my most recent CV, dated 2013. I started to update it to include my last position as interior manager on Icon. My STCW and ENG1 certs had long expired, so I started investigating redoing these. I uploaded my CV to the Sovereign Crew website first. An hour later, I got a call from a recruitment agent. I panicked. What the fuck? This wasn't meant to happen that fast. I had kind of hoped to maybe get a boat job in October. An hour later, a captain called me. This was a Monday. On Tuesday, I was hired. Fuck. 
I couldn't get my STCW in time to join the boat. The captain suggested it was okay, that I didn't need it, alarm bell, that he needed me more. They had fired their chief stew and needed someone to fly in for an owner's trip in the med that week. I went up to London's Harley Street to do my ENG1 medical checkup, and before I knew it, I was on a flight to Naples, Italy. I was petrified. I didn't think I was ready. If I needed more time, was this a mistake? I didn't know if I wanted to be around people, and it all felt far too overwhelming for me. On my flight from Heathrow to Rome, I met a lovely South African girl flying to Johannesburg from Oxford. Her brother had just hung himself. Trigger, tears, panic attack. I wanted to stop that plane and run back to Cornwall and climb straight back into bed, but I couldn't. I joined the boat in Naples, and we were off the following morning early to Mykonos. I dived right in. And to be honest, I did not have one moment to stop and think about where I was, what I was doing, or if I was okay. It was all systems ago, as is with the industry. 18-hour shifts on my feet, smiling and just getting on with getting on. We left the med earlier than expected after the owner's grease trip. He was launching his book, Shut Up and Listen, and opening Catch Steak in New York. We had to get back. This was the year of Hurricane Dorian, which we tailgated, probably the worst Atlantic crossing of all seven I've ever done. Everyone chucked up. Drawers flew out from upper pantry and smashed glass everywhere, even though I dearly stowed, taped, and taped over the tape again. It was rough. Where the fuck were the quailoids? We lost satnav a lot. We went days without comms, and we all camped out in the main salon. The galley walk-in freezer became an excellent place to hang out, and I discovered a new level of Chinese torture with rolling and crunching sounds behind the deckheads of the salon. We stopped over in Bermuda for a few days to let Dorian pass. She was then destroying Miami. It felt so fucking good to put my feet on shore again and not to have to balance my walk to the bathroom. Bermuda is incredible. I stopped there the first time, my first crossing on Muriel Icon in April 2010. Stunning beaches. I love the Bermuda pants, the suits wear, and super sexy accents. It's ridiculously expensive though, and probably the most expensive KFC I have ever had. A few days later, we were being pressured by the owner to get to New York, so off we sailed. We first docked outside his hotel in Atlantic City, the Golden Nugget. It was a vibe. So this is where the cruise ship Americans hang out. We docked on the 11th of September, the day before my birthday. So the crew took me out to our owner's restaurant, Maestro's, overlooking the yacht marina. A full effort was made. My name was personalized on the Maestro's menu, and the entire fine dining experience was well appreciated, especially after 21 days at sea. That night, I broke my 11th month sobriety. I had massive FOMO, and it was my birthday after all. We ended up on the dock at a party. There was a live band, the Bruce Springsteen tribute band, and of course, I made myself on stage, and I was born in the USA apparently that night. By the way, I can't sing a note, but I'm not shy to try. After a day or two of refueling and provisioning, that's yachty lingo for grocery shopping, we were stocked and ready to head up the East Coast to Chelsea Piers, Manhattan. The owner was literally on the dock waiting to board when we arrived. Crew hate this. There's so much that goes into preparation before guests board. The boat needs to be turned around, washed down, chamoisied. We need to unstow the interior and make sure that everything looks exactly as it was on their departure day. Owners don't see this, and I believe they have absolutely no idea what prep goes into arrival day. 
We hung out in New York for about two weeks. The owner had a million media interviews in the city and on board. He launched his book, Shut Up and Listen, and then Catch Steak New York opened its doors. We didn't stop. If it wasn't a book signing or media conference, it was a catch after party. I feel like the entire time we were in the city that never sleeps, neither did we. We headed back to Atlantic City, New Jersey, where we docked for two months when we left New York. I was living the whole Jersey Shore experience. What a ride. One weekend, my second stew, Canadian Esther, and I decided to do the whole New York Greyhound bus experience. Champagne and snacks, we were on fire. We had the weekend off and we were going to New York, which was Esther's first time. We stayed at the Roosevelt Hotel in Midtown East. We went to see Billy Joel in Madison Square Gardens. We then went to catch afterwards to say hi to the owners, Mark and Eugene, with a bit of penthouse after party sealing the night in perfect New York style. An early morning yellow cab from the meatpacking district back to Midtown at sunrise, we were in a New York state of mind. We were tourists all weekend with the Billy Joel soundtrack on repeat. We walked Central Park, we were hungover at the Museum of Modern Art, we went to Cats for coffee, where Sally met Harry and had her orgasm. We stocked up at Whole Foods, we had the best Italian on the Upper East Side, we had bagels and mimosas for breakfast at Grand Central Station, and we took the New York subway to Greenwich for Sunday brunch. Late Sunday night, we got the last Greyhound bus on the Hudson River line back to the boat in despair. Then it was back to the ground. Our weeks went back to normal, Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. We spent most evenings at the Golden Nugget, having dinner at one of the restaurants, dancing in the bars, or getting spa treatments. One weekend, I got the train up to Philadelphia, not quite knowing what to expect, and it blew me away. I stayed in the PSFS building, now the Lowe's Hotel in Central. America's first skyscraper rising 33 stories into the air. Using curved glass and bold geometric shapes, it was constructed in the Art Decor period and was home to the country's first savings bank with clocks by Cartier, making sure everyone was on time. I like to think it would have been the kind of place Jay Gatsby would have gone to do business. From 20 miles away, you can still catch sight of the undisturbed sign of the original towers, the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society, as PSFS glows in glorious pink neon. Today, you can still see the imposing bank vault doors in the hotel lobby. Very cool hotel. Philly is honestly one of the best American cities I have ever visited. It gets no cred. I went all tourist and did Liberty Bell, Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence and Constitution were signed, and visited other American revolutionary sites. I also visited the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Steps, immortalized by Sylvester Stallone's triumphant run in the film, Rocky. I went to the Macy's department store where the movie Mannequin was filmed. It was so dated, I imagine they have kept it this way as per movie. The shopping is to die for and very boho. I bought some of the best incense I have ever bought and now buy this online wherever I am in the world. The PF Candle & Co. Teakwood & Tobacco scent is heavenly. I'm currently trying to recreate this myself. I had the best bucatini pasta I've ever eaten. Sorry, Italy. I ate donuts, jumbo pretzels, and of course, a Philly cheesesteak roll. 
I got the train back to Atlantic City on Sunday night. I would definitely go back to Philly. The people were super trendy, very hipster vibe. If I could compare it to any other city I visited, I would compare it to Melbourne in Australia. Another weekend, while we were still up in AC, I decided to book a weekend to Washington, D.C. I managed to convince the crew to join me, so we hired a car and the six of us drove down. It was a vibe and a half. The girls and I stayed in Georgetown, and the guys stayed downtown. The Friday night we arrived, we all met up downtown to watch the live jazz band, the Tower of Power. They were phenomenal, and it was one of the best crew nights out I've ever had. We all dressed up really snazzy. That crew was honestly some of the best crew I've ever worked with. It was banter central. Saturday morning, we split up. The girls did shopping and mimosa brunches in Georgetown. The guys did boy things. They jumped on segways and visited the Army Museum and watched a game in one of the American sports bars. Saturday afternoon, we went to the W Hotel Bar, which overlooks the White House. We had fancy cocktails, then went bar hopping around Georgetown and watched the Grateful Dead tribute band at some dodgy underground bar. It was very fluorescent, filled with beards, bellies, plastic cups, and veterans. On Sunday, it lashed with rain, so we decided it would be a museum day. We visited the National History Museum, which was brilliant. I had no idea and was so thrilled to discover the first floor crystal section, possibly the most extensive collection of crystals and stones I have ever seen in one place. It was magical. I had bought a ticket to see a show at Art Tech House. If you haven't seen one, do yourself a favor. Art Tech House is an innovative art destination dedicated to the intersection of art, science, and technology. I've seen both the ones in New York and Miami too. I can't get enough. It's like being on ayahuasca, only you're not. Very sacred geometry, neurons, science meets space meets fifth dimension sort of vibe. It's an art like you have never experienced before. The plan was to meet the crew in the central parking after my show. They had all gone to an Irish bar while I was at Artec House. We all met at the car. It was pissing rain and cold. Esther put the keys in the ignition and, and nothing. It wouldn't start. We all thought she was taking the piss initially, so the banter was rife until shit got real. And we realized the car actually would not start. We called the rental agency, got collected by AA, and dropped off at the airport car rental to exchange the car. By the time we got back to AC, it was past midnight. The wind had picked up. We barely made it onto the dock and passerelle. By Monday, we could not wait to get out of AC and head back down to Florida. We eventually headed back to Fort Lauderdale and docked at the Lauderdale Marine Center, where we would be based for our after-season refit period. The LMC is pretty much where it all started for me back in 2010. Only a new and improved shipyard and a fab new crew bar called Yacht Bar, where most sundowners were indulged. It was fab to be back in Lauderdale. Everything was just as I had left it. Yet there were so many changes. One is the new Del Mar Hotel and Rooftop Bar in Las Alas, and the second is the new Indian restaurant, Bombay Dunbar. While we were down there, I finally got to do my STCW refresher at the MPT School of 17th Street. It was a quick three-day refresher. What wasn't ideal was that the crew and I had decided to do a juice cleanse, which coincided with my course. During my firefighting stint at the Lauderdale Hollywood Fire Department, I set off the alarm for oxygen. It was bloody awful. I was in this oversized fire suit, clearly no firewoman my size in America, boots that didn't fit me in a hundred degree heat, trying to put out a fire in a dark room. Not fun. I used up my oxygen tank supply and the alarm rang, causing two beefy firemen to run in and pull me out of the fire. Ploy, hmm, my pleasure girls, make sure you get his number. 
During our time docked at LMC, we visited West Palm Beach and I had a few dirty weekends at funky South Beach hotels in Miami. I love the vibe there, the art decor, the neon pink signs, the buskers, the clubbing, art tech house, Versace's restaurant on South Beach. The Brightline train from West Palm to Miami is incredible. For a VIP ticket, you get booze and canapes throughout your journey on an air-conditioned, trendy train with hot waiters and tunes. I almost didn't want to get off. I had also hired a car and drove down to Key West for a weekend, 90 miles of beach road and bridge to the end. We stayed in the cutest hotel. Not long after check-in, the reception were ringing up to the room asking me to keep the noise down. In mid-December, our captain had decided the crew could take a week or so off before the bus trip, picking up in Miami on the 27th of December. I decided to fly to Mexico, Cancun, and spend a week and Christmas in Playa del Carmen with my South African family that live in Vancouver. They come down here every year for a few months, so snowbird away from the cold. During my week here, I got really sick. I hadn't been sick since I had the bird flu in Miami in 2015. I went to a doctor in Playa who diagnosed me with bronchitis and laryngitis. That was December 2019. I was man down for about five weeks. Looking back now, I know this was COVID before the virus was attacked by the media. On the 26th of December, I flew back to Lauderdale. We picked up the owner a couple of days later and made a New Year's owner's trip around Miami. The after party was on our boat, and as sick as I was with COVID, I was expected to work. We had a cool bunch on, and as chief stew, I had to show them a good time. That means a tour around the boat and lots of tequila. I recognized the one guy, but wasn't sure until after they left and the guys on the boat asked if I'd heard of Urkel from Family Matters. Jaleel White was with King Back and Lamorne Morris. I had to take photos of them. They asked me to hang with them at a club in South Beach, but I reluctantly declined as had to prep the boat for the after party. I got the usual reception when they asked where I was from. King Back commented, what, you're more black than us? When I told him I was born in Zim. While the guests were out, the crew and I popped open a bottle of Dom, the guys smoked cigars, and we sat on the bridge deck aft watching the fireworks climax over the beach of Miami. It was beautiful, but truly all I wanted was my bed. I was miserable. We were leaving 2019, and the following day, the 1st of January 2020, was the day that Christian and I were meant to marry in Uluwatu, Bali. My night was far from a celebration, but I held my shit together, COVID coupled with severe grief and depression, and put on a brave fucking face. The owner and guest returned later that morning, and we had to do it all over again, this time while cruising out to sea and back again. Early Jan, they departed and headed back to Texas. We picked up anchor and headed down to Key West for a few days. I had an inkling that I was about to get fired. I had been fighting the captain for all the promises that were made on me joining. I had been on board nearly six months now and had no contract, no health insurance, and was not even insured to drive the crew car. I questioned this and was told, I'm not American. Only American crew on board get contracts and legals, as they are the suing culture. Wonderful. So because I was South African and unlikely to sue, I was not entitled to a contract, health insurance, or insured to drive the crew car. It was a joke. Since I joined, this chat went back and forth, and I anticipated that these cowboys would eventually tell me to jump ship once the season was tied up. The boat arrived in Galveston Boatyard on the 9th of January 2020, and not long after we docked, I was called to the bridge. I knew what was coming and had secretly already started packing. I was informed that my services were no longer needed. Of course not. The owner's trip was out the way, and I had turned the interior around. 
And because I spoke up for myself, these cowboys didn't like the fierce in me. I speak in plural because we had two captains. The owner was building a 77-meter fed ship, so the first officer stepped up. But basically, I was micromanaged by two cowboys, not just juggling one man-child, but two. Funnily, they handed me a contract NDA to sign on my departure. Ironic that I had been asking for something to sign for six months, and now, on my way out, expected to play by their rules and sign their NDA. I left the bridge feeling a sense of absolute relief. I packed up my cabin in four hours and took their best asset with me, their favorite 23-year-old deckhand. Those not in the yachting industry might find this quite scary, but this is yachting. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's the only industry I know of where people celebrate being fired. Usually it's for screwing the crew or the guests, sleeping in on your watch day, putting the Cayman Island flag upside down, as our Texan chef did, or getting pissed on duty, or, if you're brave enough, all of the above. One minute, you're the owner or captain's best asset, but the second you become a liability, in my case, questioning my crew rights, you're out skis. I was dropped off in Houston and expected to fly back to London the following morning. I didn't. I slept in, I hired a car, and I explored Texas. Austin, San Antonio, and Houston. The weather was shit, it was January, it was grey and very cold, so... We bought a one-way ticket to Mexico. I went it off. I was still grieving what should have been my honeymoon period. I was angry at the world, angry at Christian, angry at the fucking boat. I knew what would help me. Margaritas on the beach with a young, six-foot-four, blonde, 23-year-old with an accent. We arrived in Cancun at the end of January. We rented an apartment in Tulum's Aldea Zamna, then a new and upcoming extension of the hotel zone by the beach. I'm not going to delve into the whole Tulum experience here, since I now live down the road and have plenty to talk about, so I'll fast forward to March. I was emailed by the South African Embassy in London. My South African passport was ready to collect eight fucking months before I had applied in Trafalgar Square for a new passport, since mine had been destroyed, coincidentally, by the agent in Bali. Coincidence that on return of mine and Christian's passports, which were both in for visa renewal at the time of his suicide, Mine was returned with black ink poured all across the pages. Anyway, I then bought a quick return ticket from Cancun to Heathrow and planned to spend two weeks in London, collect my new passport, visit friends and return. I even left my luggage in Cancun at my hotel to hold for two weeks until my return. I got to London, collected the passport and was in Manchester with my friend Amy for the night before I was meant to fly back to Cancun the following morning, 17th of March 2020. While we were having dinner, she received a call from her company, headquarters in London. Amy is on the management team for the Rolling Stones and had just been notified that Mick was on his way back from Paris as they had been warned that borders were to shut imminently. Apparently, celebs get all the warnings before the plebs. A few hours later, I got the call from the airline. Flight to Cancun was cancelled, borders were shut. A pandemic virus had just hit the news. I spent the next few months in the UK on lockdown, my luggage was still in Cancun. My tan was fading. I buried my head in online training. I completed positive psychology, life coaching, mediumship, and the science of well-being courses. I wrote and wrote and wrote. I visited with a healer friend whom I met when I first saw her for Reiki in January 2013 after a horrific loss. My boyfriend back then, Sam, had left me, never broke up with me. He just left, you know, as you do, walk out and don't say anything. 
I needed closure, I needed healing. I searched for a local Reiki healer in London and Bonnie Southie came up in the search results. She had actually moved out to the country. When she picked me up from the train station, I discovered she was actually from Durban, my hometown. We headed off immediately and now talk every day. Bonnie is my muse. I've learned so much about esotericism, healing, and about myself through her. Bonnie is also a numerologist. She magically takes your date of birth and can download information about your personality, your character, your strengths and weaknesses. She can tell your life purpose and your life lessons. Her core business uses this machine. I call it the magic machine, which identifies energetic and informational imbalances and delivers balancing frequencies and information back to the body. Based on quantum physics, the core machine has taken natural medicine into a realm of energy and information with unlimited possibilities for health and balance. This is spiritual and energy medicine at its finest. I'm on a monthly retain with Bonnie, so technically I run on her machine all month. Bonnie is able to do an analysis from her clinic in the UK and tell me in Mexico what is out of balance, what is bothering me, or what might be looming. It's just an incredible piece of energy technology. It can pick up on deep-rooted emotions, feelings, whether resentment, anger, depression. She can tell me when my liver needs to rest, when I need to drink more water, and if there is a family issue bothering me. She then calibrates this all and sends frequency healing to me to balance and to heal. She was able to diagnose my gut with parasites before I even suspected I had any and before I went to my Mexican doctor and had tests done and of course I had a parasite. Bonnie is also the founder and inventor of Aura Sprays. There will be a whole podcast just on this phenomenon. They are quite literally magic in a spray bottle. She has a full range, and each spray has a different remedy. I have her full collection, and absolutely astounded at the magic the sensual spray unfolds. Sometimes, when I feel I need a little bit more passion in my life, I spray this one on, and it's as though I have unleashed my mojo dragon within. Guys literally come out of the woodwork, and that's when the protection aura spray comes in handy. During 2020, I stayed with Bonnie for a couple of months. It was more like a healing retreat. It was the start of the COVID pandemic and uncertainty was rife. I couldn't get back to Mexico as borders were shut to UK visitors. And my only way out was to get back on a boat since yacht crew were seen as essential workers, right? I decided mid-June I would look for a yacht job to get back out to the Med quickly considering all other travel was banned. I casually started looking at crew job posts to see what was out there. I was being picky, as at this stage in my career I could be. I was at the top of my game since I had no intention of ever being a captain and there wasn't a position above mine. I set an intention for precisely what I wanted. At that stage, I wanted a private, new build, 70 meter with minimalist decor in the med heading to the Caribbean for winter. During my time in lockdown, Bonnie did an aura spray workshop with me and showed me how to develop my own aura spray, which was then calibrated on her magic core bioresonance machine. I created a spray called Manifest. The fragrance is like my favorite Tom Ford perfume, Tabac Vanille, and I infused it on the machine with affirmations and intentions to manifest your visions and goals. Think of vision board in a bottle. We had so much fun. 
The workshop was a full day and I felt like I was back in science class, very intricate and detailed to ensure the right amounts of fragrances combined produced the exact scent you're after. By the end of the day, I'd finally produced my very own aura spray and I called it Manifest. We calibrated it on the machine using powerful words, intentions and affirmations and let it sit on the metal plate of the core machine overnight. The following day, I was so excited to test it. I sprayed it on me and held the intention of finding the perfect yacht job and started my day with a coffee in the garden. Two hours later, a captain from a 70-meter private new build called me. He had found my CV, which at this stage I hadn't even updated with the previous boat I left in Texas. I explained I needed to update it. He wasn't bothered. He told me he wanted to speak with the owner and would get back to me later that week. That night, the late Captain Andy called me from Italy and asked for my passport details. I flew out two days later to join the boat in Naples as chief stew. I only have one little bottle I created last June of Manifest Aura Spray, but Bonnie and I have decided to join forces and will be producing the full range of Aura Sprays from Mexico soon soon. The full range, protection, cleansing, sensual, energizing, relaxation, balancing, intention, enlighten, and now manifest will be available soon. I'm currently working on rebranding the magical little bottles out here in Playa. When I've traveled, I've used protection. Enlighten is also a favorite when I'm feeling witchy and doing rituals. I use energizing every morning before I start my day and relaxation before I go to bed. I'm literally lights out five minutes after hitting my salt pillow. Sensual is my go-to and it's like a bit of a magic pill on dates, dangerously so. So I finished up the med season on that very blue boat last year. We did the usual run, Saint-Tropez to Capri and everything in between. Owners from hell. I've met and worked for all sorts, but this guy took the cake. I had met the devil's advocate. He was a game player and we were his chess pieces. He got thrills from seeing the crew run and scurry around like headless chickens. He totally fucked with us. He would hide the soap dispenser in the gym and scream blue murder for it. Of course, shit rolls downhill. I would get it first, being his main point of contact. I'd give it to my second and she would swear blind she had done her checks and it was there. Of course, after he'd leave the gym, we would search the head and miraculously, the soap dispenser would be wrapped up in the dirty towel in the towel basket. He complained about everything. Every Friday was Shabbat and a roast chicken dinner. Now, we had them on for two months straight. Every Friday, he'd eat his roast chicken with a dinner knife. One such Friday, he went absolutely fucking ballistic and screamed for a steak knife. Where's my fucking steak knife? We were beyond scared of him at this stage. He was a joke and literally gave us hours of laughter in the pantries during meals. I gave him a steak knife to use for his buttery, tender chicken. The following Friday, he didn't want a steak knife. I remember one day he called me to the swimming pool. He would spend all day lying in the pool in his little budgie smugglers. It was gross. Hint. Bearing in mind that the average age of superyacht owners is around 70. He shouts at me across the pool where he lay tanning his already shriveled little body. He wanted me to inventory the fruit. Yep, he actually wanted me to spreadsheet every fucking piece of fruit we had on board so that he knew when his peaches and plums were running low. 
I assured him, sir, we had more than enough and visited the fruit market ashore every other day to top up that wasn't good enough. He wanted an exact spreadsheet document and count of every peach, plum and nectarine on board. It took me a couple of hours sitting in the ice-cold walk-in fridge counting fucking fruit, then collating it into an Excel document and presenting this to him at the pool. He smiled smugly and said, yeah, you were right, we have enough. He also didn't want any other stew to do these mundane tasks for him. He insisted I did everything for him personally, like I had nothing else to do. On another occasion, he decided that he wanted the twin room in Lower Guest made into a double. He insisted we put the two twins together and make a double bed. He asked me this at 12.55, five minutes before I was about to serve lunch on the off deck. I radioed the team and the mission began. The engineers had to come up, unscrew the beds, which were fitted in place. This affected the entire harmony of the room as the mirrors and the artwork were now off-center. It looked ridiculous. He kept asking me during the lunch if it was done. I explained I had been up with him on lunch service but would go down and check and then confirm. He made me do it immediately, then shouted at me when I returned, wondering why he had to wait for more water, which I had actually topped up before I went down, knowing he would find something to complain about. This was the type of guy that complained if there wasn't ice in his water. So the next seating, I'd make sure there was ice in his water, and he would scream at me for putting ice in his fucking water. The search began for the linen for the now double bed in Lower Guest. I had the entire crew of 18 searching bilges from tank deck to bridge deck looking for the linen which he insisted was on the boat for the bed that was never a double. I even called the previous chief stew who had joined the vessel at bilge. She confirmed there was never any double bed linen made for that bed as he had never approved it, suggesting it would never be turned into a double bed. All this happened over one lunch service. I was about to throw his Prosecco over him and throw in the towel numerous times during just that lunch. He then made me draw up architect plans of the layout and measurements of the lower guest room as a double and as it existed as a twin room. This took the rest of the day. By dinner service, he remembered that he had decided not to make that a double and agreed there had been no linen purchased. One day, Mr. C was up in the gym on his Peloton. The same peloton in the same gym he used every morning at 5 a.m. On this day, he was convinced that the peloton had been moved. It hadn't. We were not stupid enough to do such a thing to a crazy little man. He made me call my deck crew to move it back one and a half inches exactly. I called the guys. They came up, measuring tape and all. Everyone knew that the scar was beyond anal, so it had to be exactly what he asked for. They moved it back exactly, measured, one and a half inches. The following morning at 5 a.m., I heard a scream from the gym. I actually thought he had had a heart attack and dropped his green juice and came running. He wanted the peloton moved forward one and a half inches to where it was. He said it was far too far back. The deck team moved it back to its original position as soon as he left the gym. One Sunday evening, we were anchored off Cannes. Sunset barbecue on the Sunday was all set up and ready to go. He hated music, so there was no sound. He hated lights on, so we were working in the dark. The chef was grilling away. 
Must Jews were topping up drinks, clearing plates, and I was bouncing between the table and the grill to ensure timing was impeccable. I anticipated every move he made, and usually I was right. I was plating up at the grill with our Italian chef for him when he screamed at me so loudly I nearly dropped his fucking Cavalli plate. He shouted at me at the top of his lungs and told me to turn down my radio as he was trying to think and that my radio noise was distracting his thoughts. I put down his plate, walked over to his table, quietly, smiling, and whispered, Sir, it's not my radio. That's the French gendarmerie on speaker approaching the boat in port. My radio is always turned down during service, and I have an earpiece, so you wouldn't hear anything anywhere. I smiled, turned around, and walked back to the grill. When he was busy arguing with his wife, I accidentally dropped his sausage on the teak before plating it and then served him with a smile. Mr. C decided one day he wanted a fashion show, so he made me pull out all his clothes, and there was a lot. I mean, how many fucking white pants and white shirts can one person own? This seems to be a trend in the industry amongst owners. Same item, same color, hundreds of. So I had to watch Mr. C dress and runway down the Marston cabin for hours, every item of clothing that belonged to him. And then, of course, I would personally have to hang up his pile of mess left on the floor. Visions of his droopy 70-something wrinkled backside will haunt me till the grave. Oh, he also complained because his under-armoured jocks hadn't been returned to his cabin from laundry. I got the girls to check and recheck and recheck. He insisted he had a red pair with him. He made us search all the crew mail cupboards for his red jocks. Did he honestly think someone wanted to get into his pants? Gross, just gross. At the end of that game, he smiled, telling me he found them. He was wearing them. On the day of departure, he made me inventory the water bottles on board and spreadsheet the expiry date for each bottle. What did he do with that information? Who the hell knows? I didn't even know that water had an expiry date. The joke was he would arrive at the boat with provisions he had flown in on his private plane from New York. I'm sure the weight in extra water bottles from Costco was not worth the fuel charges. The entire setup was just fucking bizarre. He is without a doubt the strangest human I have ever met. I couldn't imagine doing another season with him. When he departed, we of course all celebrated as crew do. Pool party, after tunes, neck in the leftover dam, before we picked anchor and headed up for the shipyard in Livorno. Those were the two longest and most testing months of my yachting career. Who on earth was this creep? Did he actually get off on these mind games and watching us scatter around him? Unfucking believable. That night, after my shower and before bed, I sprayed manifest aura spray all over me. I set the intention of finding another boat. We had a few days off, so I went to Pisa for a long weekend. I wanted to escape the crew, book myself into a lush hotel, and drink Prosecco in the square listening to Italian guitar and accordion. On my way up by the train to Pisa, I got a call from a captain on a 73-meter boat. He told me that his owner had headhunted me and wanted me to join her boat. I was blown away. I also got a call from a TV production talent recruiter. I ended up having two FaceTime meetings. One with Bravo, and one with a billionaire businesswoman I totally resonated with. 
twice now, my Manifest Aura Spray had landed me jobs in literally hours. By the end of that weekend, I had met the owner, a billionaire from New York with residents between Mayfair, Cannes, Capri and Miami. I had accepted the job and was on my way back to resign on Monday morning. I ended up leaving Current Boat on the day of my birthday after the crew presented cake, lunch and Prosecco. What a farewell. There was a lot of Prosecco drank that season. I hired a car and drove up the coast from Livorno to Cannes. I took a week off between jobs and stopped over in Portofino, the birthday night, Imperia, Ez, and then Cannes. I felt such freedom and was just so damn glad I would never have to see Mr. C or his wrinkled butt cheeks ever again. I joined my new boat in Cannes and we headed straight for the Marseille shipyard. We were there for two months and I had to manage an absolute headfuck of a refit. Captain Pistol on his holiday for four weeks home, as did most crew, and I was left to sort out what was an absolute sham of a boat. If health and safety came on board, we would be locked up. There were a few times that week I considered running off that boat. I persevered and so glad I did. I absolutely adored the owner. She was ruthless, called a spade a spade and gave no fucks. If I ever had a mentor, it would be her. We clicked. And during one visit to the boat, she invited me to sit and have lunch with her. She told me I reminded her of a younger version of her. Maybe this was subtle manipulation or smart management. I don't know. She also invited me to use her villa in Cannes one weekend. I obliged and drove down after work one Friday evening, taking two of my stewardesses with me. Luckily, the chosen weekend was just before France went into second lockdown, so we made the most of our weekend in Cannes in a billionaire's mansion while she was at her condo in Monte Carlo for the weekend. When lockdown hit us, we were all pulling out our hair. Winter had crept in and we were all tied to the boat and going fucking bonkers. I was so grateful to be staying in a guest cabin as we had some day workers on board that needed my cabin. Thankfully, I could escape and have some extra breathing space and a bathtub to enjoy. I maximized that perk and bathed literally every morning and every night. Bubbles, overhead speakers, and dim lighting twice a day for about two months. We eventually set off across the Atlantic, stopping off in my least favorite country of all, Gibraltar, to refuel. The crossing was heavenly. We saw loads of dolphins, some whale, and witnessed some stunning sunsets as we sailed towards the Tropic of Capricorn. During a two-week Atlantic crossing, we still work. We have bridge watches, walk-arounds, security checks, fire drills, and projects to work through before we get to the other side. I did some training with the girls in service, their detailed cabins. I created event portfolios and replaced the awfully sterile crew profiles with a bit of my joy de vivre. We got to work out on the sun deck and even tan. Before we left Marseille, we were all PCR tested, even though we had just spent over two weeks at sea crossing the Atlantic on a boat with no other human interaction, we had to PCR test on arrival in St. Vincent, the Grenadines. The captain had insisted we go all the way down to pick up our first charter guests. The captain, with zero personality and without a doubt the most passionless, soulless, uninspiring Dullsville of a human I've ever encountered. Shame. He meant well, harmless, but less being the operative word in his character. Although British, with no banter, he came from a yacht management background, having worked for one of the most notorious yacht management companies of all time in Fort Lauderdale. This made my job hard. There was no wheelhouse banter, and he sucked every last bit of yachting fun out of the chamois. 
he would make for a perfect British public school headmaster. Rules, routine, and repetition. His idea of a good theme party for our charter guests were hobby horses. He got his dear mother to make them and to ship them to the boat. His idea of a fun day out for billionaire charter guests in the Caribbean. What the fuck? Needless to say, they were lost deep, deep down in the garage's bilge, which we called the void, never to be seen again. Not on my watch, anyway. The season kicked off, and we had charter after charter after charter. We were worked to the bone. We were tired, exhausted, and our pineal glands had been poked at daily. Every morning, up in the bridge at 10 a.m., for the doctor to stick his dirty little stick to the back of our brains and poke around, to confirm that we did not have the C word. Ironically, we had hardly left the vessel in months. The only interaction was with guests. So if we had caught the flu, it would have been a no-brainer who contaminated us. One charter we had that season bought on their own nurse from New York. He was a young, hot, and full of attitude. On New Year's Eve in Antigua, he left the boat and went out in Antigua that night when our boat had left for a guest's midnight cruise. The following day, just before our 10 a.m. PCR test in the bridge, he returned to the boat. I had already clocked that he hadn't shown his biceps yet that morning. Oh, he would be showing off his perfectly photoshopped body every morning in the crew mess over breakfast or in the gym or stretching on the bow for all to view on the crew mess CCTV. Dr. Love stumbled onto the passerelle on New Year's Day around 9.30, as high as the Wu-Tang clang. Prior to his walk of shame, I had gone down to his cabin to check if he was okay. It is common for guests to overdose. I have witnessed one in my previous years on another yacht. His cabin was empty but looked like he had a bender before he had even left. I found empty Coke baggies, Viagra halves, and lots and lots of baby oil smeared across the frosted shower door. I have a good inkling on which stew he had done in VIP, but had more important things to deal with than which stew was screwing who. The nurse was reprimanded on arrival. Our 10 a.m. PCR test that day was postponed, and a new doctor from a neighboring island was helicoptered in to put stuff up our noses. The season and lockdown started taking its toll. Since my last weekend in Cannes at the owner's villa, I had only had four days of not actually working. These were not consecutive days either, and we were not able to stay off the boat, and we had a fucking curfew. I felt entrapped, I felt claustrophobic. Crew were starting to lose their shit. Even the engineering department of grown adult men was falling apart. The third engineer kicked the second engineer out of their shared cabin and made him sleep in the crew lounge on a sofa. I had never experienced such hostile fucking behavior. Our male chef was PMSing daily at the stage, and I was waiting for knives to start flying. The bitches were getting bitchier, the little pricks became big knobs, and the tension was palatable. PCR tests were done on arrival to every island, so daily since we moved around a lot. Even our personal trainer had a breakdown, and I found myself consoling her in the crew mess during chartered dinner service. In my eight years of working in the industry, the tension felt during my last season was frantic. It was the ugly sister's ugly sister. We all turned into ourselves and became the worst version of ourselves. In one week, four crew resigned. 
including the chef who had done an HS stint on board, the PT, and two stews. My junior stew returned to her 30-meter chilled vessel in the med after realizing the big boat dream meant more work and extra drama. And my favorite, most hardworking service stew had accepted her dream job on a bigger boat. Everyone was feeling it, but the captain did not nudge. He was a yes man, yes to the owners and no to the crew. Mental health is a growing problem in the yachting industry. The number of accidents resulting in deaths caused by tired crew has increased, as has suicide. Who would imagine that getting to travel the world in a luxury yacht would make you so fucking depressed? There is a fucking ugly side to the yachting industry that is unspoken. The confined environment of a boat for an extended period with increased work pressures and long hours can drive you fucking batty. I was trying my hardest to hold my shit together and talking about it with my captain was no good. Swiftly being shut down. Do you think it's your age? He asked once. Twat. The fatigue was overwhelming, like it was physically pulling me down and more often than not, I find myself on the brink of tears for no reason and I don't cry. It was challenging to get out of bed. When I did manage to drag myself on deck, there was an undercurrent of friction between the interior team I had to sort out. My stylishly staged photos from my worldly travels that I had to keep on a privacy setting while working in the industry couldn't be further from the rosy picture they painted. Despite the yachting environment being a breeding ground for mental health issues, the picture persists of it being nothing but glamorous fun. Sure, it's a bit of hard work, but you're traveling the world in a floating palace, part of an exclusive club of yachty insiders. What's there to be down about? But in reality, about half of all yacht crew feel isolated at times. I imagine during this COVID pandemic, it is normal for crew to experience feelings of anxiousness or depression, and for crew who have pre-existing mental health conditions, their symptoms must be aggravated further. Unfortunately, not all captains are versed in mental health, and most certainly the owners who pop Xanax like fucking smarties don't even consider the crew dynamics. On Monday the 8th of February 2020, I was on board in St. Barth's. We were coming to the end of an owner's trip, prepping the boat for the other owner to join that Sunday in the Bahamas for a month or two. It was still not revealed by the militant captain. Everything was kept secret by this guy. I had just come out of my captain's cabin after announcing some major problems I'd encountered with my second stew, who should have been my backup and support, boozing with guests, dropping aluminium cocktail shakers in the main salon at 2 o'clock in the morning, and spending the night in a deckhand's cabin, finally took its fucking toll on me. She wasn't performing, interrupted my sleep, and was more of a hindrance than support. She looked like hell, as she clearly wasn't getting her sleep in either. I approached her first, which led to tears, hers and then a shitstorm in the bridge when she told the captain I was the one being unreasonable and apparently picking on her. Captain Comatose, of course, did not know how to handle any sort of confrontation and suggested I wait until the end of the season to discuss it, this meaning April. Finally, it was my turn to lose my shit. I asked for a tender ride ashore and went to see a doctor. I fucking broke down crying in her office and couldn't stop. I don't even know if she understood me since she was French and I was a blubbering mess. I was a wreck, I was miserable, I had a proper panic attack and it was ugly. The doctor signed me off the boat for a week. 
I returned to the boat and the first thing the captain said to me, knowing I had just been to the doctor, was, I've written your schedule for the shipyard period in April. I felt unseen and unheard. Did he even see me standing in front of him with a swollen red face looking perplexed and a doctor's note in hand? After finally getting around to him, I was able to leave the boat after the guests departed that Tuesday evening in St. Martin. I left the boat by tender and booked into a hotel to rest. I was now on day three of my seven days off and had to go on the island for another PCR test before flying out to join the boat in Nassau on Sunday to pick up the other owner. On Thursday, I had to fly from St. Martin to Miami, spend a night at the Miami Airport Hotel booked by the captain. Don't ever stay there. It's fucking horrific. And then onwards from Miami to the Bahamas on Saturday to stay in another hotel before joining the boat on Sunday. I had not rested all week. I moved from boat via tender to hotel through airport to hotel. It was stressful and I was absolutely exhausted. On Saturday, I missed my flight to the Bahamas. I checked myself back into the shitty hotel as I didn't even have the energy to switch hotels. I lay on that hard hotel bed with stiff pillows, bad lighting, and wept as I heard every flight take off and land overhead. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't fucking do it. I had anxiety thinking about traveling and returning to the vessel, to the crew, and to the Gestapo, as the crew called him, the captain. So many things went through my head, letting the owner down, letting my interior team down, letting the boat down, and then letting me down. I considered what would harm me more, returning to the boat or not returning to the boat. I sent the captain an email and booked a one-way ticket to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Sometimes in life, you have to just take the plunge, Take the risk and stop and consider what truly makes you happy. If something isn't working for you in the workplace, you always have an option out. I think so many people, in particular yacht crew, are so afraid of failing or being seen as a failure in the industry. It's so important to love yourself and choose yourself first before your job, your owner, your boss, your career. My key message here is to never lose yourself just to keep your job. I repeat. Never lose yourself just to keep your job. Mental illness is not just about taking prescription pills. It's about living a life that serves you and makes you truly happy. It's also so important to have the support of your peers, colleagues and boss that support your personal growth and mental well-being. People that genuinely care with no expectations. I mean, for me it's obvious that a healthy crew, both physically and mentally, will have a larger return on investment for the owner in the long term. The super yacht industry is so fickle, so superficial in terms of physical looks. It's the only industry I know of where you have to attach a photo. Sometimes a full length is requested on your CV. It's all about good looks, better bodies. But they don't seem to be concerned about the emotional or mental strengths. There is a massive gap in the industry for well-being, mental well-being. It's not entirely normal to spend 24 hours a day with the same faces, little or zero contact with the outside world, including our families we may see once a year if we're lucky. 
By the way, our comms are usually cut when the guests come on board so that their Wi-Fi isn't affected. This means we can't communicate to our people off the boat. Social media, email, text message, nada. The entire industry is like a luxury military operation. Many skills required on board a vessel complement established behavior found in the armed forces. Living in close quarters, teamwork and professionalism are just some examples of what is expected of both military personnel and crew. Uniforms, rules, routine, drills, and months away from home. Oh, and also a few good men. It's important to find meaning in your work. Find a purpose and enjoy what you are doing for those eight or 18 hour workdays. We all spend more hours at work, whether at the office or on a boat, than we do with our families or at home. When everything feels hard, when you're suffering with anxiety, when you feel like it's falling apart, ask yourself, is everything actually hard right now or does it just feel hard right now? I'll say that again. Ask yourself, is everything actually hard right now or does it just feel hard right now? Things that are actually hard, for example, are not being able to afford food to eat to survive, not being able to pay your rent, your sick child, an accident that paralyzes you, or losing your fiance to suicide. Things that just feel hard, hating your job, lethargy at work, long working hours. It's important to identify the tension points that make things feel hard and to take small steps to improve them. What can you let go of that will make you feel lighter? Painful things are incredibly heavy to carry emotionally and take a physical toll on your body. For example, a death. Some things that are actually hard, you might have to carry with you for the rest of your life. Like, in my case, losing your fiancé to suicide. These are heavy and difficult to carry, but this will be with me forever. But there are areas that you can choose that will make the hardships like the above, feel lighter and give you a sense of peace, like your job, or volunteering at a kid's school, cleaning your house every day, or letting go of the drama queen friend that zaps your energy. These are the things that you can choose to change that will make those really difficult grievances feel lighter. What can you let go of that will make your life and the state of it right now feel lighter? In my case, it was my boat job. It felt heavy. I could choose to walk off the boat and make myself feel lighter amidst the heavy things that I couldn't let go of, like the grief of my fiancé's suicide. Remember, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. The world is feeling your pressure too. You are not alone, I promise you. There is a sense of global overwhelm. We don't know what tomorrow holds, so remind yourself daily that you are not alone and you always have a choice. Are things actually hard, or do I just feel like things are hard? I would suggest starting every morning with a gratitude practice. I do this every morning. Finding the things that you're grateful for. For example, and also thinking about things that you're really grateful for that happened within the last 24 hours. And really feeling into those memories and pulling yourself back into a place of presence. When life feels hard, it sounds to me like overwhelm, depletion, burnout. This doesn't come from a hard day. It comes from a hard season, which has become your reality. 
Your perspective is seen through a lens of your exhaustion, of months of anxiety, of something making it feel that everything is complicated. You need to then go back to a place where you feel replenished and filled back up. Ask yourself, are you getting enough good quality uninterrupted sleep, for example? Ask yourself, what do you need to operate at the level you want to operate at? Learn to ask for help. Ask yourself if you have the required support to function at your fullest. You're not Wonder Woman or Superman. If you are overwhelmed and not asking for help or not getting the help once you have asked for it, then it's time to be demanding on yourself and to demand rest. Maybe you don't have a mental illness. Maybe you just need uninterrupted sleep. Unfortunately, in the industry, when crew are feeling the overwhelm, they don't have time to rest. So on a day off, they go back to familiar negative coping mechanism of drinking or drugging to numb out their pain. Another reason why you feel overwhelmed and anxious. Look around you. Look around at the core five people in your space and look at how they feel. There is always a correlation between who you're spending your time with and how you feel about life. Ask yourself if there is a personal group you need to let go of that will make you feel lighter. If you surround yourself with miserable, unhappy complainers, no doubt you will become a miserable, unhappy complainer. Also, ask if there is a person or people around you that can add the joy, the hustle, the ambition, the motivation. Fill your spirit with what you need. Surround yourself with the person that you want to be. Pay attention to when the overwhelm feels worse. Sometimes life is hard and sometimes it just feels hard. Remember, you deserve to be happy. So choose yourself first. And if that person or job is no longer serving you, serve yourself and move away. When the world was in mayhem and every day was unpredictable, my only constant was the way I was feeling. And most of the time, I wasn't feeling happy. Life felt fucking hard. But I knew I had been through hell and back before. So in retrospect, 2020 was not actually that hard for me. It just felt hard at the time because I wasn't surrounded by a supportive network. When you lose someone you love, you realize how short life is and how valuable your short time on this earth is. You tolerate less, you have higher values, and most importantly, you learn to choose number one, yourself. Because at the end of the day, you're the only person responsible for your happiness. So choose you. If you made it to the end of this episode, it means there was a message in there for you. If you want to get more from User Smokeba, then tune in every Monday for my new episode. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of my guidance or bonus content. Your experience of the show means a lot to me, so I want to welcome you to leave an honest review. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Musa Smokeba. See you all next week.